Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, from the gleaming streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio, I am the legendary Burl Bear, true crime writer. A guy over there, that's Mark Boyer. Yeah. Magic Matt Allen produces the program. You are there, right? <laughs> Hello, this is... Hello. This is Ron Francel. Hello, oh, Ron. Ron Francel. How are you? Well, Ron Francel. All right. Okay, Ron. Uh, you've got a book coming out, what, uh, tomorrow? Day after tomorrow? Yeah, Tuesday. 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 Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. And the title of the book is... It's called Death Row, not death as in dying, but death as in hard of hearing. Yeah, like, uh, like the record row. company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that, only spelled the usual way. Uh, but, again, uh, what's more important is that it's not true crime, which people have come to expect from me, but in fact it's a crime fiction. Yeah, we were last on with Shadow Man. I was uh, last year, last spring, about this time, maybe. Yeah. Um, and that was true crime, uh, or my latest true crime. I don't want to say last. I might jinx it. But uh, uh, definitely been an interesting ride over the past year going from the true crime to crime fiction. That's quite a leap. It is. Um Serious, humorous, what? Well, it's it, it, it's both. It's uh, kind of ghastly. The crime is uh, a ghastly crime, and and actually kind of comes right out of my true crime background and my files. Uh, but this is a story about um, a group of old guys that get together in. the every morning in the local diner to save the world and compare car batteries. <laughs> uh, and they get drawn into uh, the investigation of a crime. And uh, their interaction is uh, has some humor to it. Uh, these are likable guys. Well, all old guys are likable, except for the ones who aren't. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. Well, there, and you know what it is with old guys. Uh, they, they don't throw their arms around each other and say, hey, I love you, man. Uh, they, they show their affection by joking around and insulting and poking and prodding. Um, and, and there's a lot of that going on. Oh, good. I like that. <laughs> well, yeah, poking and prodding can be entertaining. Yeah, get a different microphone, will you? Um, Mark C.G. Boyer has had the same problem with the same microphone every week. Yeah, well, what else? We're going to take up a collection. And it works fine, and then he touches it. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a very touchy person, touchy feeling. You know, they say well, as long as you can hear me, that's what you That's the only thing right? that counts is can we hear Rod Francel. Now, well, what age, Ron, did you start your true crime career? Well, true crime, uh, yeah, well, I'm a journalist. I, I became a newspaper man very, very early in my life. Actually, a friend of mine and I started our junior high school newspaper. Oh. Uh, 
But like most young guys who go through journalism school and they find themselves working their first job on a small paper, I covered cops and I covered the court hmm. uh, early on in my career and, and for quite a while. Uh, and then later as an editor, of course, I was supervising the people who were covering the cops and the court. Um, I was working at the Denver Post as a senior writer at the time I um, decided to write a book. It was my fourth book, but it was a book about uh, a, a rather terrible crime against literally the two girls next door. Uh, and how it affected all of us who were right around them and then the community itself in this small, small town. So that became the book, The Darkest Night, which became a big bestseller. Right. And up to that point, I, I didn't expect I was going to be a true crime writer. I thought I'd go back to writing other books. I'd written three novels before that. Uh, and I figured I'd go back to doing that, but the success of The Darkest Night... Right, that sort of, suddenly your career I, path changes. Exactly, it chose for me. Yeah, right. We share that commonality. Well, and it, it's uh, the market, you know, the people that, that make money off of us, our agents, our editors, our publishers all want to continue to do the thing that they made some money off of. Uh, the the um, uh, A great example, well, this, uh, Death Row is my 19th book. So from number four to number 18, I'm true crime oriented except for one. And that one, nobody wanted me to write, but I wanted to write it. Yeah, and it's a it's a uh, road trip. It's a father son road trip memoir. Oh yeah, I remember where, that one. Yeah, my teenage son and I went to uh, the Yukon in search of a cocktail that contains a hum a mummified human toe, and uh, the, so the the book, the Sour Toe Cocktail Club. Um, is really about a father kind of wanting to make sure he's still relevant to his teenage son. Uh, uh, but we go, we go to the Yukon and we do this tow. And it's a, it's a marvelous book. I loved it. I consider it my best written book. Uh, it is also my least selling book because <laughs> the people around me uh, said, hey, good luck with that. And um, we, we want you to write true crime. You can, go, you can go play all you want, but when you get done, come back and we'll write true crime and make money. Uh, so it, it's very difficult. And, and in this case, um, as, as we've talked about many times, my, my style depends on a lot of detail. So I believe I have to go there. I, I'm an old school journalist. I believe I have to go to wherever the crime happened. I have to talk to people. I have to see what's there. I have to, I have to immerse myself in it. Uh, that's what produced Shadow Man. Right. Uh, then came COVID. <laughs> and, Hard to travel. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't get on an airplane. I couldn't check into motels. I couldn't eat in diners. I couldn't talk to people. Uh, I couldn't get into courthouses or archives. 
so I holed up in my office and I wrote this mystery using, you know, 30, 40 years of experience writing about cops and courts. I wrote this mystery. And the mystery is death row. And here we are about, it's about to come out. So When Grisham wrote um, Hunt for Red October, he uh, he got called oh, in Clancy. by the authorities. Clancy. Clancy, yeah, he got he got pulled in by the authorities, who wanted to know how he knew so much about submarines, <laughs> our nuclear submarines, and how they work. Right, right. So I, well, I was wondering it, uh, if you're doing a true crime, you start with the crime, you start the information gathering and research. Once you've collected all the material, you lay it out. Identify the flow of the material, and you write it out. When you're writing a uh, sort of a crime mystery novel, do you start from the end and work to the front? Do you just don't know where it's going to go as you write? How do you approach? Uh, that's a, and I I think if you ask a bunch of mystery writers, they they all have a different answer. I right. um, yeah, yep. in this particular case, one day I just years ago, one day I happened to be talking to an elderly friend of mine from Washington State and and he just out of nowhere mentioned that he has this little coffee club that he goes to every morning uh, at the local diner and they're all seventies and eighty year old guys and they call themselves Death Row. And and that just struck me. And at that moment, uh, the, the general plot for a story just popped into my head. And that was, you know, this could be a group of guys who investigates a crime. Uh, I didn't know the crime. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know it. But, but the, the, the general plot sort of uh, blossomed in my mind instantaneously. So you could say that it's, in in the case of Death Row, it starts with the characters. Uh, the main character in this case is a retired Denver homicide detective. Um, he's, um, I, I, you know, he's... He's interesting. Let's put it that way, okay? He's he's a cynical, crusty, reclusive old fart who just wants to fade away. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> that hits way too close to home. <laughs> it sounds you know, too much like Mark. <laughs> for all of us, believe me. Uh, he's moved to this little town in the Rockies. He's been there for about 10 years. Uh, when his closest friend, who's a retired priest who has his own unorthodox past, uh, <laughs> brings him this this cold case, uh, his natural reaction is to sort of growl and and grumble about it. But the more he learns, the more he, he can't look away. Uh, but the problem he faces is that he's just a retired cop, a, a, a gray-haired old guy. Uh, he doesn't have any of the high-tech forensics that he once had. He didn't have, it, it has none of the, the technology at his disposal. Doesn't have the team, uh, doesn't have the resources of the Denver PD. All he has is this motley crew of old guys who happen to have some skills that they don't even realize they've got. Uh, and so they get involved in this investigation, and it takes off from there. And 
this little small town cold case that they started with uh, becomes something much bigger and badder than they expected when they realize they might, they might be chasing a serial killer and that serial killer might still be operating. Hmm. Ah. Those serial killers, there's no way you can reason with them. No, no, I've tried. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, they aren't. And, you know, I've said this on your show, Burl, before, I think. Um, if, if, if I'm not particularly intrigued by serial killers. I, I'm not a Ted Bundy guy. I, I really don't find much interesting about them, except that they become the gas in the engine that, that sets in motion uh, uh, some extraordinary things for ordinary people. And suddenly we've got victims, victims' families, uh, cops, all, all caught up in something that's, that's bigger than they are because a, 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 a sick individual, a serial killer, that's this got everything in motion. Um, why do you think the public is so fascinated with uh, serial, serial killers and uh, and just grisly crimes in general? What is it about that that set you know that makes people want to watch? I think or read. I think it's. Um it was it is too easy to blame media but we live in a media saturated world right now where uh you can't turn on the tv and not see crime dramas and true crime episodes and that sort of thing and t uh, t movies based on crimes uh so i think that's part of it uh the but i'll also say this and maybe this is a little a uh, little harder and that is that I believe for uh, millennia maybe since the, the, the dawn of mankind we have wanted to know what the threats are that are out there how we can take steps to you know not become victims and how we can avoid dying unnecessarily uh, so uh, I think it's in our DNA to to want to know what the threats are out there. To some degree, I think the whole true crime industry has fooled people into thinking that maybe the true crime industry has the answers. Uh, no more questions. No. <laughs> well, I, I we do. We do throw pictures of these people up there, and and then we tell a little bit about them. Or sometimes we tell a lot about them, uh, and and people think that based on that they might be able to see the next serial killer coming. Yeah. Well, that was that was easier when all the serial killers looked like Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. uh, what we know now from true crime TV and true crime industry in general is that they look just like us because they are us. Yeah. I don't think I don't really think that the current state of instant access to media and information has anything to do with it. Edgar Allan Poe 
wrote all the time. All of his stories are about horrific things that happen. He doesn't provide gory details, but he he lets you know. And that was in the eighteen what eighteen fifties and sixties. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that's that's exactly it. That's right. And so, and then you had in the fifties, you had all the pulp magazines mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, with lurid crime and sex in them. So I think that I think the population in general is fascinated with what they're not. Oh, without a question, without a question, and then that. That fascination has been fed by wall-to-wall media. Now, realizing that we are fascinated with that, realizing that we want to avoid unnecessary death, uh, realizing that that uh, we occasionally want to look at dirty pictures of dead bodies, um, uh, the media has taken taken that up. Right now, that's primarily in um, in visual media like TV and film, streaming. Uh, the 500 channel world has you know uh, has been um, uh, just amazing for for feeding that. Uh, publishing is you know uh, a, a weird landscape right now but no i uh, i think you're absolutely right and that's that that was my point is that yeah. that there's something genetic about our interest in in what we are calling true crime but just in stories of what the threats are out there and when, I, Doc, when i was uh, growing up there, when, <laughs> doc bond go ahead wrote a book on on this very topic why are we fascinated with serial killers? Yeah. He linked it to the same thing of why are we fascinated with the Frankenstein story and the Dracula story. Yeah, very similar. I the fascination with monsters. Yeah. The other... Monsters. Yeah. yeah. When, when I was growing Absolutely. up in the 60s, uh, there wasn't a lot of entertainment available for kids. It was other than was cartoons. Soupy sales. <laughs> well, cartoons during the day. Um, and at the time I was growing up, there were the quintessential person presenting, you know, an old sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Larry Seymour Vincent, who was thoroughly entertaining. Um, he he was he he made fun of the movies like like Elvira did, and he was always trying to crash a party next door. He could never do it. He was very fun. And then there was Chiller Theater, and he got all these monster movies. And I happened to grow up near a revival theater in Sherman Oaks called Lorena. It's now a clo- it was a clothing store the last time I drove by. And they would do a month, a month of cowboys, a month of detectives, and then they had a month of horror movies. And I would climb up the, the shimmy up the pole in the back, climb in through the bathroom window, go to the balcony and watch movies I was way too young to watch. And I have been... <laughs> what a sneaky little bastard. Oh, yeah. I have been fascinated by by horror for my life. And um, I've always... I always ask my guests what they think it is because I'm trying to figure out what it is about me that is drawn to going to see these movies. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of them are horrible. Uh, recently, Black Phone was tremendous. That was a great movie. 
Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, there's good violence too. in it. X. X was very interesting. I haven't seen Pearl yet, the prequel. Yeah, X is great. Got a little off on a side trip there, but it's the same sort of thing. We're fascinated by by horror and the other, and serial killers aren't exactly, you know, Mickey Mouse and Minnie. No, No, but you're right. Uh, It's monsters. In general, I would say that's what all horror and and uh, true crime and, and mystery, crime fiction uh, have in common is that they have monsters. They have people doing things that people shouldn't be doing. Uh, in the case of cozies, maybe that's more delicate, but it, 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 the, the, the fact remains that people die. <clears throat> now, I gotta ask you advice here. This is the part of the show that our listeners love. According to research, uh, the listeners of True Crime Uncensored love it when writers talk shop. <laughs> right, we were, we've been doing that. And uh-huh. eating donuts, they talk shop. I'm working on a book right now with Frank Gerardo, right? And we, we always want to have the sense of forward motion when we're writing a true crime book, right? If you digress too, lo- too long, you're afraid the reader's going to lose, right? Right. want to right. keep, it, keep it going. Well, we have a situation where there's a dead body on the bed, fully clothed, been strangled to death. The last three people to be in the guy's apartment were two homeless youth, boy and a girl, and a low-level Russian gangster. Now... We start investigating this case. And where it takes us is it takes us to Brighton Beach, takes us to uh, everywhere. It takes us far beyond L.A., takes us to Robert Vesco. I mean, it takes us so far and from to, the you know, original... To, yeah, the FBI? Yeah, the FBI. I mean, it takes us so far away from anything you would think of why there's a dead guy on a bed in West Hollywood. Right, right. That how do we're trying to give the background of every set and setting and who these people are that I, I have to give an introduction. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to follow this guy who hasn't been in the book so far, but trust us. <laughs> Here's his story. Exactly. That's a tale of two cities. Yeah, it's like that. Well, and it might end up being about as big. Well, a it's a huge story. <laughs> the tale of two cities. It's a huge story, and it, it involves is. so. But they all converge. Uh, and it winds up being why this guy's dead. What's the motive? And uh, it's something that could only be explained by going through this elaborate. <laughs> Explanation, you know, and I think that um, it's interesting. I think that um, when uh, somebody said that that true crime uh, and mystery are different, they're both about crime. Uh, crime fiction starts with a "what if," and true crime starts with a "what is." Yeah, well, and uh, I think I think that. Um, 
you know, you get to make up so much stuff in a mystery. In a true crime, you don't make up the plot, you don't make up the the, the names of the characters, you don't make up anything. Yeah, uh, and it's the, stranger the, than fiction. Yeah, well, it is, and and the the challenge for the true crime author is the structure of this, and that's what you're facing is is a structure problem. Uh, how do you how do you weave a thousand different threads into one beautiful quilt? You know, um, Earl. Yeah. Do you remember Jackie Brown, Quentin yeah. Tarantino? Yeah, and the end of the movie is the same sequence of events portrayed through the eyes of each of the three main characters. And you see one character go through the motions, see the next character, and then you see the third character. And by the time you finish with the third character, you have pieced together in your head what actually happened and how it all came together. So one approach would be just to go and talk about the mushroom mob and the FBI and their deal. And then you go and talk about the next piece of the puzzle by itself. Then you bring in the girl and the boy and their involvement and weave them back into the other two stories. That's kind of what we're doing, except almost in reverse order. We start by identifying who was there, and then we go to set and setting. What... What's, what is the setting of the homicide? And then the characters. What's, what was their set and setting? How were they? How did they wind up there? And then what's the connection? And then why the hell is this guy dead? What's the motive? What's the reason? There's, there's, no, there's no sense to this so far. And then in order to figure that out, we got to follow this guy that we've never even mentioned. From his, you know, uh, all the way to Robert Vesco and back. And Richard Nixon. Right. And, and then uh, you got to talk about Vesco and Nixon, about whom books have been written. And you're, you know, they're... they're kind of cameo players in yours. Yeah, it's just uh, like a, a, a few paragraphs. You know, yeah, Vesco shows exactly. up and, you know, says this and that. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, we, have, we have cooperation in this book from a mafia, a top mafia figure who actually went on YouTube with a list of questions from us and answered them all about this illegal activity he was doing years ago that he made millions on. He was very forthcoming in telling us because he can't be prosecuted because it was so many years ago. But it's fascinating that we're able to get mafia dons to cooperate with us in writing our books. It amazes me. And we also got a guy from retired from the Russian mob to cooperate with us. So it's yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, I, I'm I, I love talking to my fellow crime writers just for that reason. Uh, we find ourselves in odd little corners uh, of the world and of life uh, all the time, all the time. Uh, it's um, I don't know. It's strange. Uh, it, I I was offered uh, in one of my books. I wrote about uh, a husband and wife who together and separately had killed five different people. And I, it was one of those complicated kinds of books because they got away with it for more than 30 years and a whole series of 
cops were chasing them at different times. Uh, so it was a very complicated story to tell. But just just this in, within the past week, um, I got an email from somebody who was a relative of the woman, the killer wife, uh, asking if I knew anybody who'd like to pay some money for her ashes. What? Yeah, that's, that was my re- that was my reaction. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, he he had access to her. she had died. He had access to her ashes, and he wondered if he could turn that if he could monetize it. <laughs> oh, good heavens! <laughs> he could do like the church did and sell pieces of the real cross. Those are the kinds of people we're, we're rubbing elbows. Yeah, I know. There's the an entire subgenre of um, individuals, websites, auction sites that sell uh, artifacts. Yeah, murderabilia. And the, and the murder murderabilia. And murderabilia. Yep. Very peculiar. And, it, it is strange, um, and it's—I uh, don't find it. Like I say, I don't find those people fascinating. I no, don't. I, they, they, run, they're just run, run, they're just run. Characters. They're just characters. Uh, I find the ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances to be far more fascinating. Yeah. And I think when readers read true crime. Those are the people they're identifying with, except for some sickos who like the Bundys or the Mansons or anybody else. Um, most people are going to identify with the ordinary people who are thrust into these extraordinary circumstances. Uh, they're going to say, what would I do in this situation? Right. That's the appeal of uh, the book Missing. By me and Mohsen Zia, our, our man in Pakistan, as we call him. And it's a fiction book, but it is based on uh, a real people and, uh, as you said, a remarkable relationship of normal people in unusual circumstances. And that's exactly. the fascination of it. Yeah. Same same concept. Well, and that's part of it. That's just part of it. Uh, speaking uh, of, of uh, learning from other authors or sharing things, I'm stealing something that he pioneered. And that's how I happened to find out about him originally. About 10 years ago, I don't know how I happened to stumble upon a book by this kid, because he's younger, much younger than we are. He's now older, of course, as 10 years ago. Me and Mosazia in Pakistan. We've had him on the show a few times. It was the first book, e-book I'd ever seen that had hyperlinks to bonus features like a C, like a DVD it's not like you buy a criteria DVD it'll have bonus features yeah just word of the original mm-hmm. his book had bonus features this was over right. 10 years ago and I thought what a great idea it is and so I I, I I think the world of literature is going to be fascinating 10 years from now things that we can't we can't imagine right now. I mean, he had he had hyperlinks to original music, original poetry, all sorts of stuff. And I went, that's a great idea. So 
I'm not shy about giving him credit, obviously, but I'm doing the same thing in this book. There's, we have information about the Russian mob in America that if we put too much of it in the main part of the book, it doesn't move the story forward. So we're going to have the rest of it as bonus material. Sure, sure. And why not? Why not? Why leave it out? Have you ever, have you ever seen uh, the wine 19 Crimes? On your your local liquor store shelf, whatever it's it's a it's a very popular Australian wine brand, and it's called Nineteen Crimes. And it's named for the fact that there were nineteen crimes in you know nineteenth century England for which you could be banished to the penal colony in Australia. Ooh. Okay, so this wine is called 19 Crimes, and the labels feature pictures of, of uh, the mugshots of uh, inmates who were sent to Australia, real, real ones. Hmm. If you take your phone with an app and point it at that label, the guy on the label tells his own story. Wow. Okay? Yeah. So why couldn't we do that with the covers of books? Why couldn't we develop software where we we could put our phone on the cover of a book as it sits on the shelf and there'd be some something more than just the blurbs on the back uh, that would uh, tell, tell a prospective reader that maybe they want to buy this book. So I think I think technology has some fascinating possibilities for us. Really, I agree with you 100%. I think we're on the, the cusp of either a comet of creativity or the cusp of a collapse. One of the two. Well, and I will throw in there that I fear we're on the cusp of books being written by artificial intelligence. Oh, I know that's scary. And that, uh, that it, how far are we away before a, uh, a book wins the Pulitzer Prize or, or the Nobel? At the moment, <laughs> you know? artificial intelligence is nothing more than large amounts of, uh, of connected memory and brute force. Right, they, right. It's not an independent cognitive thinker at this moment. Right. It and, just and has a bunch of very sophisticated... It's not today. It's not today. It's but very sophisticated algorithms that look for esoteric patterns in information and connect them together. But the AI is you has to use tremendous amounts of computing power to make it functional. Well, there's a thing now, and you've probably seen it, where you can say, write me an essay on uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and it'll write that essay. Yeah, but that's true. And most of it's already canned. Well, and I I think that... um, Paper mills have been around forever, bro. Come on. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we used to be able to buy them. Uh, (laughs) Somebody else wrote them. But some other human wrote them. But, right. uh, and, then, and then the professor would look at it and go, wow, this looks like the same one I got 34 times before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. But no, I, 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 you know, it's it's all fascinating to me, but it all comes back to your original question about why are we fascinated by this? And, um, 
I, I think, again, it's, it's that fear of monsters out there. And uh, whether that's a saber-toothed tiger or, uh, uh, you know, somebody from the opposing tribe, I don't know. But um, it, I think the challenge for me that, uh, on one hand, in true crime, you don't pick your your bad guy. You don't pick your monster. Your monster's presented. He, he is what he is, or she. Uh, when you get in, into crime fiction, well, now you pick your monsters. And, and for me, I wanted it to be a monster that felt like the kinds of people we write about in true crime. Uh, but I also wanted it to be uh, a monster um, to match my hero. The bigger, the bigger the evil, the bigger the hero. So uh, it couldn't be somebody who's, you know, skulking around outside the bar and rolling the drunks. Uh, if I want a, a truly amazing hero, I have to have a truly threatening bad guy. Yeah. Then you have situations where, I had the author of this book on the show years ago, where you have first-degree premeditated murder by these people who got away with it, in quotes, for 25 years until some new cops took over this cold case and came and arrested them. And each of these people got five years minimum security for first-degree premeditated murder. Yeah. Because they both made a deal to testify against the other in exchange for only doing five years. And they both made the same deal. Neither one of them ever had to testify. And they both only did five years. Well, there, there's a book right there that has multiple villains. You have the, the killers themselves, but then you have the system that lets that happen. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I think of it every time I go in the store because one of the killers was the guy who invented Frappuccino. <laughs> well, okay, he, he should have been crucified for that. <laughs> for that alone. <laughs> I really like Frappuccino. But, uh, yeah, he got away with that. So you, you, you meet an old friend, he gives you the premise for the story. How do, you, yeah. how do you come up with the details to go with it? I mean, well, then, yeah. Yeah, because all you have is this group of old people that meet and a cute name. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's it exactly. And, and, and every small town has a diner like this with a bunch of old guys who are fixing what's wrong with the world and poking fun at each other. You know, it's, it's not uncommon. Um, we recognize these guys. We might even sim- they might be our uncles or our grandfathers. Right. But um, it, 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 then I had to build that crime, of course, and and I I based crime in death row on um, a, a couple of different real life crimes and about uh, in in my journalism career, my income, but. Um, so it's that classical mystery, but at the same time, it, it kind of dives into the lives of old guys whose best days are behind them. People we see every day, but uh, we don't really notice, and who they themselves kind of feel they're growing invisible. So 
it, it, there are two things kind of going on here. We have the, the mystery, uh, of course, um, but then we have this subplot there of guys growing old and uh, how they how they're dealing with life now uh, and how things are different for them. So uh, I just wanted to blend the commercial crime fiction with a kind of literary thing uh, about these guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it'll appeal to both suspense fans and to people who want a little more literary storytelling. It's not a literary book, per se. It's that. It's It's a mystery. But it it touches on a few uh, non mystery uh, subjects. Right. Uh, my uh, my apologies for the next question. Um, I am not a fan of Agatha Christie. So I've just been okay. pissed too many times. When you get to the last five or six pages, a characters and information is presented that solves the crime. And you've gone through this whole book trying to figure out what's going on, and she dumps it on you. That's cheating. Well, I, I just... Yeah, that's cheating. I, I don't like... I, don't, I didn't like Sherlock Holmes for the same reason. It just... It just it, but he was so over the top with the backstory that we had no way of knowing. Right. Right. So do you provide enough clues for the reader to figure out what's going on? Uh... In in a classical cozy, let me under, uh, explain some some of the terminology in mystery writing. It, it it goes off in different directions. Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, a lot of mysteries being written today are what they call cozy mysteries, which are kind of more delicate and you know more closed room kinds of uh, mysteries where uh, you're given all the clues uh, and and you have a chance to solve that but then there are the police procedurals and the more hard-boiled crimes and you still have some of that you still have the clues are being presented all along the way. Uh, Elmore Leonard. But there, yeah, Elmore Leonard is a great example. Um, but that's not the way a crime typically goes, right? I mean, uh, we typically haven't been introduced to the killer uh, when the first news breaks that somebody has been killed. That's one of the rules of mystery writing. Uh, in in Death Row, I, I handle it as a kind of um, exploration by the, the investigator, this old Denver PD guy. Um, so, no, I, I don't expect you to solve the mystery on page 10, but as you're given more clues throughout the story, you're starting to get an idea, and then I flip the tables on you. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's so rude. <laughs> it is mean. It is mean. That's my true crime guy coming through. I well, if you make the if you make the twist fun. Yeah, everybody's talking about the Wilbury twist. 
You know, yes, you know, I see dead people. Yep. And you're do. one of them. <laughs> sure. See, see more often all the time. That scares me. Uh, yeah. Well, no, it, but you're right. It, it has to it has to hang together, and and the mystery fan really wants that that fair play. That they want you to give them the opportunity to solve this crime. Uh, unfortunately, in the, the what's different about a police procedural is generally. Uh, that the investigation kind of goes the way it does in real life, and we don't really start to get a good idea of who who done it until we've collected a lot of stuff. Um, that's not to say that the police procedurals can't do what a cozy does, uh, but uh, it, it's it's a little different, and and uh, the. Uh, that's the fun of it. The, like I say, police procedural tends to be the more uh, gruesome, the more hard-edged, hard-boiled, uh, noirish kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in this case, I have, uh, you know, like I explained to you there, I, what starts off as a cold case that nobody solved uh Blossoms as they learn more. It blossoms into something bigger than they ever expected. <laughs> Sounds interesting. I hope so. <laughs> well, I'm sure it is because Ron's a hell of a great writer. Oh, you're too nice. You're yeah, I know nice. I am. <laughs> He's also imaginary. Beryl doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't exist. I'm a figment of his imagination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Hey, I'll send you, I don't know if you saw the cover of my new book, it's really spiffy. I haven't. I'll send you, I'll send you a copy of the uh, manuscript, you can write a fancy two-word two blurb for me, you know? Or astonishing. Or, astonishing. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. You know, what the... <laughs> <laughs> what the... Yeah, that works. Yeah, what the... <laughs> blank, blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as I'm being held to only two words. Yeah, well, three maybe. <laughs> okay, well, then I could finish it yeah. uh, spectacularly. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Stealing Manhattan. Yeah, Stealing Manhattan is the name of it. True story of the world's greatest gem heist individuals. Yeah. Great. yeah if, I want to. Yeah, if you're into gem heists, you'll... They stole a billion dollars worth of Billion gem. dollar gem heist, 1992, and they got away with it. Which is pretty it, amazing. You know, it's interesting to me that, that has always been interesting to me that the subgenres in true crime uh, and how people will define themselves around those subgenres. Somebody will say, I'm only a heist reader, or I'm only a. <laughs> yeah. A white collar crime, or a mafia a wife reader. reader. <laughs> yeah, or a serial killer guy, or a you know something like that, uh, and and they'll look down their nose at the others. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like alcoholics looked out on drug users. You know. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of funny. Uh, so I guess we all have our little. Uh, well, they, they say the world is divided into two groups. Those who laugh at the Three Stooges and those who wonder why. <laughs> well, I'm in the former. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> yeah. 
boy, did you know that Curly Howard died when he was in his 40s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Says, babe. Yeah, babe. Yeah, but he had the stroke. Yeah. And the story, the story's a little, it's just a little more complicated. Um, ha- the Howard brothers, says Mo, Curly, and Shemp. Yeah. Um, were part of Ted Healy's. Right, Stooges. Stooges. Yeah. And then there were uh, half a dozen separate troops, all from with Ted Healy around the country because travel was so expensive. Um, and uh, Shemp got a contract as a dramatic actor with the studios. And Larry Fine and Curly came along with Mo to do the two reelers for all those years. And when Curly had the stroke, uh, they went to the they went to their brother and said, "Hey, we're we're stuck here." So he left his contract as a dramatic actor to finish out the two reelers with the boys. And then Curly did a uh, a cameo, cameo, yeah. Where he's on a train and doing a sleeping bit. Yeah. Hey, and I'm a, and I'm a when you when you know the whole story that you just started there, um, it gives a whole different appreciation for the uh, for the Stooges uh, and the, 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 how they were all different from from the Stooges. They they they, they all were not Stooges. Um, and Mo was uh, sort of a gentle uh, leader of the group, uh, and, and um, the, the whole story about Curly is just moving. Uh, there, there's a lot of tragedy in the in oh, the story. Oh, there's just a whole bunch of tragedy. The, you know, they never got a pay hike. In the 30 years, they did these two reelers until they went and shot some of the movies with Joe Besser. Yeah. Screwed. Yeah. At, uh, Larry was a sweetheart. I got to meet him at the old folks home. Really? You know, you know off the freeway. The Holly, you know, the- I'm wondering if there are any, um, any family members that still benefit, and I hope there are, uh, from their work, or if... If their work doesn't generate any uh, any royalties whatsoever, or, or whatever they call it, and, um, the movies would never be just about it. Uh, they, it's really it's extremely rare to see a full two reeler on television because they have all they've been hacked up, you know, yeah. so to fit the time frame they want. But uh, you could still get uh, get them on uh, Blu-ray or DVD. You get the original ones that they cut. Like the first issue was the whole thing was in rhyme. Yeah, courtroom <clears throat> thing. Well, the Spanky in our gang was important in my life because it was punishment for my mother. It considered it punishment that uh, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I couldn't watch what I called the funny kids. Right, Rose, uh, and, like little Rose Marie. And so, uh, I had to, uh, I had to mind my P's and Q's. Yeah, the Leo Gorsi wouldn't come around with, with a Satch. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Bowery Boys. Right. Hey, I, I was fascinated with that of following, the, that whole group. They started off on Broadway, in the play Dead End, 
which they made a movie out of. It was very mm-hmm. serious. Yeah. And the movies they made after that were melodramas. And it wasn't until they started doing the Bowery Boy uh, movies that they became movies because they were melodramas before right. that. Angels with Dirty Face. Yeah, like I that. just watched that the other night with John Garfield. Great yeah, film. Great film. But we're just yep. we're so entertaining here. It's amazing. <laughs> the depth of our knowledge is astounding. Yeah, we're yeah. dilettantes. We know a, a little bit about a lot of things. And Not enough for that's Jeopardy, exactly though. It. That's exactly it. A life in journalism. I'm I'm a mile wide and it's deep. Yeah, it's deep. Uh, Waited so, you all day long and never get your ankles wet. So, do you have That's anything? Right. You have anything else in the works for your next project? Uh, a, I have to write a sequel to Death Row, and what I'm doing is uh, basing it uh, um, in in significant part on uh, a real crime that that happened sort of just up the hill from where I live in New Mexico right now that nobody's heard of and and it, but it's a marvelous story uh, but I also am feeling around on one or two true crime possibilities um, and seeing you know seeing if they have legs uh, in the end that's uh, what we all do we I could tell a million stories, but that doesn't mean I could write a million stories and expect to sell them to yeah. a publisher. People will come to me with stories, but unfortunately, they're smoking gun. You know, guy walks through the room and shoots somebody. How many pages does that take to tell? <laughs> well, or or people who have some some connection with a crime, and they and it's a, it's an important thing to them. But in the end, when we look at it through that critical lens of, of whether it's marketable or not, um, it, it might not work. And, and it's difficult to tell somebody that what they've brought you is kind of a, a, a garden variety, uh, 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 wife kills her husband story, and, and there's not there's not much to it there's not much mystery there's not much forensics or it's just but it was important to them of course of course yeah that's therein lies the problem also i like to experiment with different different structures different styles which fortunately wild blue press lets us do you know they're they're not against experimentation but even when i was with kensington I tried a different style on Fatal Beauty. I did it in the same style as a documentary. And uh, one of the major reviewers said, and like a documentary, it has no soul. <laughs> I said, well, I guess I won't well, use that style again. <laughs> yeah, critical. I, I did a recent interview about Death Row and the, um, uh, the uh, interviewer just raved about the humor in it. Uh, just thought it was first rate. Then the Library Journal reviewed the book and, and, and gave a very good review, but gently chided me for uh, redundant humor. <laughs> oh, redundant humor. That's the worst guy. Humor just kept coming back. I yeah, I know. <laughs> Ron, thank you very much. Thank you so much for another great hour. 
Always a pleasure having Ron Francel on the show. Ron Francel, Death Row, D-E-A-F, Row. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. True Crime Uncensored in a few months will be celebrating the beginning of our 15th year of doing this program on OutlawRadioLive.com, produced by Magic Matt Allen. Our original co-host, Don Waldman, has gone to the great beyond. Our second co-host, Howard Lapidus, joined him there. And who's next, you or me? Um, I, I'm, I'm rooting for you. Yeah, I know you are. Ron Francel. What a pleasure to have Ron Francel. Ron Francel. What's his name? Ron Francel. Yes. Try saying Ron Francel on the show five times fast. No. Well, I think it's still bad. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, Ron. Identify. I might identify as Magic Matt Allen. Yeah, Magic Matt Allen. That's the one. Same guy that's on Sirius XM. <laughs> yeah, same Welcome guy. Back. <clears throat> Welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Was, it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I said, who could we have that we put a dime in him and he just runs? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, Burrell, it's now a quarter. Yeah, it's now cut. Well, yeah, that's yeah, inflation. 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 Yeah, okay. we got to send him a quarter. <laughs> a quarter of what? <laughs> so I, uh, I I have an educated guess, yeah. uh, Ron. Um, did you write for your high school newspaper? You know, that's a good, educated guess. Yes, I did. Um, and in fact, a friend of mine and I, uh, in eighth grade, started our junior high school newspaper. You know, we use those mimeograph machines, those old uh, smelly. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what you how you describe them anymore. <laughs> but uh, that we were both. <laughs> Really, since eighth grade, I've I've had a byline appear everywhere. Wow! Uh, since we're both born in '57, I am extremely familiar with uh, mimeograph machines. They're horrible. There you go. And <laughs> hours of doing uh, copying for the teachers. Do they I, still have those things? Oh, I'm sure there's in a museum somewhere. Oh yeah, I'm sure. They should have kept some of the uh, mimeograph fluid around, though. It would have uh, it certainly made us calmer. We'd be arguing about whether to legalize it now or something. <laughs> it probably is carcinogenic. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> Only in California. Oh, yeah. Everything's carcinogenic in California. It Including may cause reproductive air, harm. Water. <laughs> uh, even even Burrow is carcinogenic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's, I come with a warning label. <laughs> If I come at all. Uh, where, where are you now? Let me change headphones here. Hopefully I'll be able to hear you this time. Uh, Burrow was having trouble identifying. That yeah, uh, we'll find out if this works. That better? No, not at all. No. It's a tragic story. Then plug into there. Huh? Plug in. Plug in which one? That hole. Oh, that plug in that one over there? Yes, and see if yeah. that works. See, that's the thing. But we're coming up on 15 years of doing this and show. And it still doesn't And work. we've not improved anything at all. <laughs> so you, you spent um, uh, the, your early years as a, a, a journalist. Yes. How did you go from sports to crime reporting? 
Well, I, I wasn't in sports as a reporter, but um, uh, other than occasionally I had to cover sports. But I think that it's, uh, it, it, they both come from the same place, which is being a, a, a avid reader when I was a kid. Uh, I, you know, I, I read early. I was fascinated with books. Uh, the idea of um, uh, choosing a profession where you're using words, where you're telling stories, was natural. Uh, the way you get paid to do that uh, is as a journalist or in public relations or something like that uh, until you decide you're going to write books. And as Pearl will, con- you know, will. Uh, back me up here uh, you don't generally make a living wage as a writer uh, of books from the beginning so, um, so it, was, it was just a, it was just a way to work with words and tell stories that's all um, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you were as, you, as a young person and you're reading these books at some point, um, one of the some of the material touched you in a particular manner, and that may have uh, influenced you also. Uh, you know, I I am aware at some point in my life, uh, you know, in my late teens, maybe, of wondering about how writers and storytellers could make me angry or sad or uh, or be entertained and laugh out loud with just some inky squiggles on a piece of paper. I it, That was magic to me. And I thought maybe that was something I'd like to be able to do. And that, that stuck with me uh, all along. Uh, I think my journalism early on was uh, as a cops and courts reporter, and I graduated to other beats in my career, but uh, early on I had that exposure to uh, crime and forensics and the, the little mysteries that we live with in the police water every day. So uh, when I finally decided to write a book, it was a literary novel. It wasn't crime. Um, we had, early on, we had difficulty selling that story because it was a literary story by an unknown writer, male writer at that. Uh, so uh, my agent at the time suggested that I write something more commercial, and so I wrote a couple of mysteries, and they did okay. But it wasn't until um, uh, I wrote a, a story about a crime against two two young women in my hometown, literally my next door, literally the girls next door. Angel Fire? Uh, that, that my my career as a true crime writer took shape. That was uh, fall. That was fall. Yeah, it, it came out originally in hardback as fall. Uh, 
St. Martin's Press bought the mass market paperback rights and hated that title. So they, they, they said at some point, we just want a more true crimey title. So that's their word. Um, and so they changed it to The Darkest Night, and and that mass market paperback edition, you know, just went, went it just skyrocketed. And oh, so yeah. well, after a, that... It's a hell of a good book. In case oh, you didn't know, you. it's a fabulous book. Uh, well, thank you very much. It, um, it, it had the effect of... Uh, oh, I don't know, typecasting me as a true crime writer. Uh, and <laughs> Welcome to the everything, club. Yeah, everything else that came after that, every idea I had after that had to be true crime or agents, editors, they weren't interested. I had a following in true crime. So uh, we just released book number 18 um, last March. I did a show with you, Shadow Man, and uh, that was... Uh, uh, well, being number 18 from four, so the 14 books in between there were uh, uh, all crime-oriented in some way, with one exception, I guess. There's similar, uh, the, the, the similarities between your path and mine uh, are, are rather striking. I started off in high school doing the high school radio show yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, with Pat Craig, who's now become quite a well-known author with his uh, Amish mysteries, and uh, as he said, you know what an Amish woman's sexual fantasy is? I said, what's that? He said, two Mennonite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Pat for you. <laughs> uh, well, no, I'll never be as funny as you, Pearl. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't make that joke up. <laughs> not taking credit. No, not taking credit for that one. But, uh, no, Pat gets credit for that. He was my first, my very first radio co-host when I was in high school. So it's uh, always fun having him back on the show. But it is true, when, uh, uh, in the true crime world, uh, after I did uh, Ban Overboard, I did... Uh, what was it, uh, Murder in the Family, which is a New York Times bestseller, the publisher immediately signed me to a multi-book contract. Mm-hmm. And uh, all true crime books, of course. And so when I started to write uh, a mystery series, uh, got great reviews, but people said, no, you're a true crime writer. We don't want to read that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I guess... Um, if I had news, it would be that uh, uh, my book number 19 is coming out in February, and it's a fiction. It's a crime fiction, and I wrote it during COVID when I couldn't go out and do the research, the boots-on-the-ground research that I do. I couldn't find motels uh, during COVID. I couldn't gas up the car. I couldn't talk to people face-to-face. I couldn't go in a courthouse. So I took all the things I knew about the criminal mind and forensics and and people in general and locked myself in my office and wrote this mystery. Uh, I, I fully expect that there will be a little of that reaction that you're describing out there among readers because we can see it with editors. Editors were reading it, and I was getting all these glowing rejections saying, hey, look, the characters, 
love the plot, love love the idea, love you know whatever. Uh, but eh, no, you're you're a you're a true crime writer. B, you're you challenge kind of the current trend to have female-driven mystery and suspense. So that was another thing. Um, because my my book, uh, my mystery, is about uh, a group of old men who are, you know, just waiting around to die and, and slowly disappearing from our view, like old men do. So it, 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 A, it's a mystery, it's got a crime, but then there's this other element that's kind of a literary treatment of uh, growing old as a man and and some of the things you're facing and and some of the ways old guys relate to each other so we'll see well being an old guy i could certainly uh, be eager to read this book you'll love this book believe me yeah i'm sure i will uh <laughs> One of the most interesting rejection letters I received, I can't remember who the publisher was when I wrote my my um, Jeff Reynolds mystery headlock, was, we really enjoyed this. Is every bit as good as a book by Harlan Coban or somebody else they mentioned that I really like? And that's the problem. We we uh, we published them, so we're going to pass on yours. Yeah, <laughs> oh, gee, yeah. thanks. Exactly. It's a, I think that young writers don't really understand how subjective this is. You can write a good book um, and never, never have it published at a a, a mainstream type publisher uh, because today, uh, book, book mark, the book sales are more about marketing than they are about the literature itself. Uh, I think. One, the, the, the game is convincing people to buy the book and then hoping that the book is a good good one. That reminds and, me of uh, the fellow who wrote uh, The Godfather, Mario Puzo. said, if yeah. I would have known the book was going to be such a success, I would have written a better book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, there are a lot of... Um, uh, examples out there. I've heard John Grisham say it, uh, the late Tony Hillerman said it, and that they, they draw a line between the sort of um, literary kind of author who's de- delving into deep stories and, and the human condition and all that crap, and what they were or are. Uh, and that is storytellers. Stephen King has said it. I, I'm more storyteller than writer. Mm. Uh, I just happen to be doing it in writing, but but my strength is telling this story. So I think th- there are all kinds of elements that a lot of people don't uh, take into account, especially in this day and age of self-publishing, where everybody's a writer. Yeah, that's that is a bit problematic, and and life is full of surprises. I was uh, doing a book signing for uh, Capture the Saint, uh, which was in a limited run and done for the uh, uh, the the Saint Club, and uh-huh. Michael Conley was signing right after me. He was so excited 
Turns out he was a big fan of mine. <laughs> he was so excited to get an autographed copy of Capture the Saint, but so which was thrilling for me because I'm a big fan of his. And uh, we kind of swapped books, you know, signed to each other. And then when I did the uh, uh, novelization of the same movie with Val Kilmer, they had read Capture the Saint and they said very politely, "Can you be less literary?" Yes, exactly. Uh, I said, you mean dumb it down? And they said, yes. Today's audiences aren't quite uh, at the same level they were in terms of their reading abilities <laughs> as people were 30, 40 years ago. So they had me write the same paragraph three different ways. The way I would do it originally, the way I would simplify it, and then really simplify it, kind of like yeah. Jane Spot and Fluff, you know? <laughs> and and they picked the one they wanted, and that's the style I wrote it in. But I, I, that was kind of a, an interesting experience to go through. Can you be less literary? Yes, yes, well, I can. In the, I, I, I won't say the old days, but early, when, when we were starting, let's say the 80s, 90s, um, literary was a bad word. It was a nasty word. Um, publishers didn't like to hear you say, well, I've written this literary novel. Um, it, you, you talk, we talked a little bit about The Darkest Night, and I always, have, I, I always approach my true crime in the narrative nonfiction form, which really means you're trying to imprint a true story with a kind of literary feel. Uh, if you go and you look at Amazon on that book or a lot of my books, you'll see some bad reviews say something like, oh, why, did, why does this guy describe how the color of the hair of the sheriff or, or the, the way the trees are blowing or, you know, I just want the facts. And that's that's the reaction to the literary part of what we what we do. Well, you notice if I was told by my agent when I had one uh, years ago, don't read your reviews on Amazon. Well, definitely don't do that. No, don't read your reviews because first of no. all, there are there are trolls who will give you one star reviews. Never trust a one star review. They probably never read the book. But besides that. The negative reviews are the ones that are going to stick in your head, and they're going to screw you up. And she was absolutely right. Uh, well, I, I you right for your to, audience. Well, you do write for your audience. Not the ones who don't. Yes, that's what she told me. She said, remember, you're writing for people who like your style, not those who don't. <laughs> right. I think we've seen it in true crime. That I, I've talked about this before, maybe even on your show, that... Uh, I think the genre breaks down in two subgenres, at least in the in the sense of voice. One is the, the commercial, and it's fairly formulaic. It it follows a, an easy pattern to see. Uh, it tends to be about domestic violence gone terribly wrong. Uh, there tend to be female victims or investigators or prosecutors. Um, and, but they always turn out that the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and they follow a fairly standard formula. Right. There are then the more 
uh, literary approaches, and and we've seen that with uh, starting with Truman Capote, but more recently in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, uh, John Barron. Uh, uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, mm-hmm. um, uh, Eric Larson with Devil in the White City, and some of the, the anything by James Elroy uh, are tend to be more literary, and it ne'er the twain shall meet. It's like the fans of the commercial find the literary too tedious and too cumbersome and too messed up with all this colorful writing where fans of John Barrett and Truman Capote and the rest find that more commercial to be a little more um, lurid, uh, a little more sort exploitative. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. And now what, uh, what Frank Gerardo and I decided to do, we, we kind of talked about this before we, we wrote together, was we took a third approach, and that is, well, how about if we tell the story as if we're just sitting here telling the story, like we are right now, conversationally, right. Uh, breaking the fourth wall if we want to, uh, which I did in, in Man Overboard. I intentionally violated every rule of true crime writing in the formula just to see if I could get away with it, and I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so we decided to do that uh, with uh, uh, A Taste for Murder and uh, Betrayal in Blue, and People commented they really liked the fact that we just told the story like we're talking to them. Uh, We still had the journalistic integrity of having thoroughly investigated what we were writing about. And the thing that really surprised me, and uh, you'll see it in uh, a book we have coming out hopefully this year, which we don't know the title of yet. It was originally called To Live and Lie in L.A., but uh, I think it'll have a different title, where we tend to get people who cooperate with us that are the last people you would ever expect. Uh, in Betrayal in Blue, we had the head of the Dominican drug cartel uh, call us up and wanted to make sure he was portrayed correctly and <laughs> gave us an in-depth interview. Uh, in this one, we have an actual mafia don tell us the entire story of how he did this massive scam with the Russian mob, how successful it was, how much money he made. <laughs> sure. And, you know, you think, how do you say, how in the world do you get these people to tell you this stuff? Well, as you know, first of all, if it's been seven, over seven years, they can't be arrested. And most importantly, they trust us. And that's what I find so, so much fun, is that if you get a good reputation for ethics and integrity as a true crime writer, they will tell you everything. And I think so. They need to trust you. Yeah. Uh, all of our sources need to trust us. Uh, and what you're describing to me is a good thing. Yes. Because um, it's, it's a departure from the formula. You know, if you were a romance writer and you signed up with, um, you know, major romance publishers, they'd send you a... Uh, a guidebook, right. uh, just a really one page that would say, okay, by page 
16, they have to kiss. By page 23, the the, the lady has to be in peril. You know, right. they set it out because that's the formula. And I think a lot of today's true crime uh, is written in that formula. And, and it's not bad. It, it sells more than the literary. Uh, it's, it's more popular in that respect. But it was the transition between... Um, Jack Olson and Dan Rule, both of whom are greats, but they are they totally different, those two totally extremes. Different. Yeah, um, yeah. Jack was not a big fan of Anne. <laughs> Anne was very different, and very she different. transformed. She transformed true crime. She created a lot of true crime fans, and uh, today's a lot of true crime writers today benefit from that. Uh, it's just not my storytelling style, and it's not the kind of story I want to tell. Yeah. You know, speaking of the romance, I actually wrote a romance book. You're kidding. No, called Kisses in the Rain, and I stole the plot from a Harlequin romance book, so I just followed the same plot. Uh, I just changed the industry that it took place in and changed the characters. But as far as the structure went, it was from one of their old books, right? I figured I can't right. go wrong here. And it was rejected. said, we really enjoyed the romance scenes. <laughs> we, really, uh, but we didn't much care for the plot. Everybody says, what are your own? I stole what uh, completely. It's your book. What are you talking about? Yeah, I stole that plot from one of your old books. <laughs> I... I... I have kept a few of my rejections over the years. I think the best one was on my very first book, uh, that literary novel, Angel Fire. Um, I, I got one day, I got a, a rejection from some editor that said, you know, this, it kind of drags in the middle, and I, you know, it just doesn't move with the rhythm that I expect. A day later, I get another. Uh, rejection, different editors saying, you you rushed through this too quickly. You oh, yeah. Down and, in. <laughs> and, and I kept those. They are together right now, but uh, you, you get those. You get those rejections and they're subjective um, for this mystery that I'm talking about that's coming out in, in um, February. I I base a lot of the storytelling in there on true stories, and the prologue to the book was uh, not at word for word, but with only a minor alteration of name and place and time. It was the authentic story of the the young the. the like five-year-old experience of a real serial killer that was taken from from studies about this guy, and I just used it as the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, we submitted the book, and an editor almost within hours came back to my agent and said, um, "I, I." stopped at the end of the prologue I will not be buying this book and and I understand it was a rather grim uh, graphic thing uh, and later we took it out but uh, 
the, the, the reality was that it was reality. Yeah. The reality can really interfere with people enjoying a book. Yeah, we, we, we tell us fake stuff. And, and frankly, I don't know in this particular case that the editor might have assumed it was fake, it, that it was... Uh, that it lacked authenticity because it couldn't have happened. Oh, yeah, it's always the true stuff they don't believe. Uh, yeah. I had the same situation with, with actually with a review I read on Amazon, which I shouldn't read, of Capture the Saint. Said, the part of this that is totally unbelievable is that this particular thing happens, and that solves the case. And that is so ridiculous. You know, couldn't bear a cover with something better than that. That part of the story was absolutely true. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was from an actual murder case that was solved that way. And as I said in the introduction, the most unbelievable parts of the story are true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what was it? Mark Twain had a quote, and it was something like, uh, truth is stranger than fiction because... Fiction requires that it be possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very well said. It's amazing. The, another one, I guess, you wonder what book they read. Uh, someone objected to uh, one of my true crime books. He said, way too much stuff about ballistics in this book. Yeah, well, the murder yeah. was committed with a knife. There was nothing about ballistics at all in the book. <laughs> Well, exactly. You, you might have just mentioned ballistics. It might have been one word in the in the thing, but that was too much for this one person, and and that's what I mean. I think that some people just have a very low level of power, and um, I, of course, gun people are are the first ones to weigh in on any crime writing uh, when we get it wrong. Yeah, what, uh, what the, there was something brilliant I was going to say. Mark, you have another question, I'm sure, for our illustrious <coughs> guest. Mm, yes, I do. Yes, he does. So, <clears throat> uh, how do you pick what you're going to write about? How do you choose your subjects? Yeah, um, I might have said this about Shadow Man when I was on the show, but the, the, the secret... And the secret of my success as a writer has always been that I never pick a story that I can screw up. <laughs> um, How do you I, know you can't screw it up? Well, because you, know, you look at this story and you say, you know, I, I would have to be consciously trying to mess this up. This story tells itself. You know, who didn't watch... Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard on TV and say, this would make a great movie. Yeah. Um, because you, you couldn't screw that up. You could take the trial transcript and, and write a script. So I, I'm looking for stories that are deeper, that they have uh, uh, the kind of conflict or crime that that makes me perk up. Uh, I, I hate to use the word ordinary uh, in regards to domestic violence where a husband kills a wife or a wife kills a husband. That's, that's the stuff of commercial true crime writing right now. Uh, and it, they, they eat it up. But that's 
to me, that's not that interesting. Uh, I'm not fascinated by serial killers, but I am fascinated by how people react to them. Um, whether it's victims, victims' families, law enforcement, whatever. And I want a story that lets me illustrate something about the, the human condition um, and has colorful characters. People that are not, you know, the, the handsome guy next door who couldn't possibly have beaten his wife, but then turns out in the end that he did. Um, that seems a little cliche to me. So, so I'm looking at at interesting circumstances, interesting characters, um, and something worth saying about us. Are you there? Yeah, yeah I'm here. Are you guys still with us? Most of the stories that you guys write about, there are the collateral damage to the actual crime. And talking about them and and what what the effect was on their lives is just as important as telling who did what to whom. Yeah, that's a good point. I think in many ways that's the reason we're doing it. I... I uh I'm, I'm aware that there are people, readers out there, that want to know every single thing they could possibly know about Ted Bundy. I find Ted Bundy to be uninteresting. He's, um, except as the gas in the engine that makes, um, that, that tells us how ordinary people react to what he did. Yep. Yeah, uh, so, as, yeah uh, it, what's his name? Uh, Brent Turvey. Uh, sure. His, his comment on serial killers is, they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. They're not mm-hmm. that deep. Actually, they're nope, rather they're shallow. Not. But they do start the story moving. Yes. And, and I think that when a reader picks up a true crime... A reader doesn't immediately identify I hope. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> um, they might immediately identify with a victim or with the victim's family or law enforcement. They're going to ask themselves, what would I do in this situation? Um, and I think that's the story I like to tell, is showing ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and and having you, the reader, say, you know, that they reacted in a way that I don't think I could. And I, I'm I'm impressed by that. I'm I'm inspired by that. We get that person, not Ted Bundy. You know, the, the one that uh, Frank and I have been working on, we thought we'd have it done about a year ago. But it's turned out to be far more than we thought it was when we started. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about it because you know we found out our listeners love it when we talk shop like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have fully clothed, reclining on the bed, as if asleep, in just one part of the of the apartment. The last three people known to be in the apartment were a Russian gangster and two homeless teens. One of them a pregnant girl, the other her boyfriend who uh, has some uh, 
the developmental problems, severe ADHD. What were they doing together? What was their connection? And the question isn't so much who killed this guy, but who didn't kill him? Mm-hmm. Russian gangster. We started investigating. It took us all the way to the Russian mob, took us to Vesco, took us to the American mafia. It took us all over the place. Including the FBI. And the DEA. Uh, it was astonishing. So we, at the beginning of the book, we tell people, listen, you're going to have to do what the people we talk to. Trust us. We're going to tell you stories and you'll ask yourself, what the hell does this have to do with the murder? Exactly. Trust us. Just trust us. It all comes together. No, it's a tale of two cities. Yeah, we have. It's kind of like French lieutenants. You have, you know, parallel lives going on here that seem to have no connection. That lead to stories that apparently have no connection. But if it will, they they won't be able to handle all this. And then then it moved too fast. You know, then it was too short. So we put some some back in. Uh, we're finally finishing it up. Uh, and. There isn't going to be that satisfaction of the bad guys caught and punished because they're not. Uh, that's not what happens, right? Uh, but it is a fascinating story, and you get to follow us as we investigate this and where it leads. And where it leads isn't necessarily where you want it to go, but it's true. It is true, and it is true crime on many, many levels. Uh, and has that been purchased? Huh? Is that under contract? Oh yeah, we got a contract for it with okay, Wild Blue good, Press. Good. It's uh, uh, we just have to finish up the uh, the final chapter, and uh, there's one more interview we want to do, and that's with the uh, fellow who is in prison for this murder, who's coming up for parole, who we firmly believe didn't do it, uh, and uh, who we think probably did was found not guilty in a separate trial and can't be tried again. So, you know, it's never going to work out the way you'd like it to. But uh, just how all these different elements that seem totally disconnected, if they hadn't transpired, neither would this murder have taken place. And I'd imagine this is a great uh, illustration, too, uh, but uh, I won't say typical, but uh, not unusual... Um, investigation where you get you go off in a number of of odd directions, some of them wrong, um, and and you sort of slowly uh, come to the to the right conclusion. One hopes, yes. uh, but um, I uh, my book Alice and Gerald, a homicidal love story that came out. Um, about six years ago, about a couple who separately and together killed five people. Uh, I I tell the story right up front uh, in the first chapter. The story is ultimately not who done it, but uh, this you you get a ringside seat on the investigation that lasts for thirty years wondering whether the cops are going to be able to put this together and whether justice will be done. Uh, I, 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 a lot of the commentary that I've gotten back 
from people is is just about what you're facing right now too, which is this isn't like a true crime. Yeah, and and you say, well, the hell it isn't. <laughs> it is the true crime. This is the true story. This is exactly what happened. Yeah, but the story uh, isn't that they killed people and how they killed them. It's the time spent in them evading capture. Exactly, and and whether whether law enforcement is going to put all the dots together, um, and that's a big part of the story too. So I I think there are a billion stories that are out there. Half of them will never be told because they don't fit the pigeonholes that modern publishing is putting on them. Um, I and and a shout out to Wild Blue Press, which I think is um, is doing some things that that are running against those pigeonholes. They're zigging while the industry is zagging uh, and doing some God really good work. God bless for it. Did you read yep. uh, 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 Matt Phelps? It was M. William Phelps. He writes under uh, him, yeah, where he says, "Boy, it's great to have a publisher." That will let you do this stuff. It doesn't, yep. you know, which is true. They do trust us, you know. And that comes. That doesn't come from a marketing perspective. That that isn't somebody taking taking the idea and exploiting it. That's coming from uh, a, a true crime writer like Steve Jackson, who founded the the press, uh, and he's he's recognizes this. He recognizes. That, that our little corner of the publishing world uh, needs this kind of thing and, and this kind of unusual, disjunctive storytelling that can turn into something very cool. Well, why do you think he started the, the publisher? I think that's maybe one reason why. Well, why did Stephen start yeah. a publishing company? He needed an outlet for his material that no one else wanted. I think that was... I think that was part of it because Steve is a thinker, and a lot of people like Pearl uh, that gravitated to Wild Blue Press uh, are thinkers, and they were people who were increasingly not fitting the pigeonholes in New York. And they were still telling great stories, and they were telling them with inventive and creative new, new rhythms. But um, they weren't. I, I proposed a few years ago. I proposed a story, a true crime story, about a case that that, as I was learning about it, I'm laughing, and I imagined this should be a, maybe the world's first true crime humor book. I mean, I should tell this story with a kind of, um, you know, smirk. Uh, nobody, ultimately, nobody dies, and that's the good part. But it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> well, when I, when, I, uh, when I proposed the book, we could not find any traction. We couldn't find anybody who would even say, hey, you know what? This could be cool. They were all... Hey, this is funny. You made me laugh. I I think you'll do a great job with it. But no, uh, the world isn't ready for funny true crime. 
Yeah, and, so yet, and yet when I did Man Overboard, Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, which is a funny true crime book, and that was how I met Jack Olson. He liked it so much he sought me out. He said, boy, I love that book. He says, you, you broke every conceivable true crime stereotype, and yet it had journalistic integrity. He says, I got right. his biggest kick out of it. And that, that, that was enough validation for me <laughs> right there. You know? Well, Janet Ivanovich has been doing fictional crime humor forever. Mm-hmm. I, I love Stephanie Plum. You know, the whole thing just cracks me up. And, and the kind of funny crime fiction, or at least crime fiction that has humorous moments, is very popular. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, a true crime, uh, a, a funny true crime book, uh, it, it, it just, I couldn't sell it. And that may be my flaw more than the the uh, genre's flaw, mm. but um, it uh, it's not that I think the world needs true crime humor. It's it's that I wish we were rewarding uh, more of the creative um, uh, the creative approaches to this old genre. Um, I sat in. I sat in a number of writing workshops and conferences where uh, editors or agents have sat up there at the front of the room and talked about we're looking for the next Hemingway. And I now know that they're not. They're not. No, they're. They say, please don't be the next Hemingway. The next guy <laughs> who writes like the last guy who sold a million copies. Well, yeah, you know, it's a very risk-averse industry. Right. Um, I am not a fan of Grisham. I found his material quite dry and hard to get through. And then yeah. he goes yeah. and writes one, uh, not, writes a book about going to Europe to play sports that had me in stitches. Uh, Grisham is one of those guys who said, "I am a storyteller. I'm not a writer. I, yeah, I'm so, not a good know, writer." He walked but I'm a storyteller. I tell a good story. It's hard to beat a time to kill. Um, and and frankly, I, a lot, uh, there aren't many um, theories, mystery, and suspense writers who sustain that over, you know, 10 books. Uh, a couple that I could name that I believe did, but you might disagree. Most lose their gas and they just get uh, dragged along by the industry churning things out because people will buy them. Stephen King uh, comes to mind. Stephen King comes to mind. Uh, you know, there are... I, um, uh, I, I kind of lost it, uh, lost him at Rose Matter. And I was trying to get through it and there's just so much composition going on. Yeah, and and it gets back to where we kind of started our conversation, which is um, uh, you, you, uh, a sophisticated reader knows when to put it down and say, okay, well, I've had enough Stephen King or I've had enough Grisham uh, and move on to the next, the next book that might interest you. Uh, but you're right. You're absolutely right. He does, uh, he does uh, in uh, Cujo, which I thought, was a fabulous book, and the movie was really well done with Dee Wallace. 
um, it's a, in the prologue, he talks about what fear is. Talks about what? Fear. Fear, fear. yes. I've what experienced that. Yeah. And he says, he describes it as a, a pleasant summer evening, nice cool temperatures, a breeze coming from the window. You're dropping off to sleep when a cold, clammy hand grabs your ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's right. He's right. He's right about that. I've read a, he's famous about these reviews we're not supposed to read. Uh, I was reading a review of Murder in the Family that I thought was really a good review. I mean, in fact, that I liked it. And it said that, yeah, I've read that Burl Bear has written a lot of books since then, but none of them, that while they're all good in their own way, none of them are equal to this. This is his, you know, true crime masterpiece. And going, well, he's probably right. You know, uh, that was a particular case, a particular book, written in a particular way, for a particular, you know, it had to fit that, what you were talking about, the formula. It had to be a hundred and exactly uh, 100,000 words to the, you know, whatever. And uh, it was a horrifying crime. And I did all the appropriate research. And it was by so far <laughs> my only New York Times bestseller. I'm happy I had one. My advice to new writers has always been, at the beginning of your career, have a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because you can put that yeah. on the front of your books forever. <laughs> well, and Steve Martin uh, 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 said, you know, has a little bit out on how to be a millionaire. And the first sentence of the item is, get a million dollars. That's right. <laughs> From there, it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah. Then you'll want to be a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about the trying different approaches, uh, different narrative forms, and yet having what what uh, Jack also called journalistic integrity, uh, there are a million just... There's always different ways of telling a story, different ways of structuring it. Absolutely. Uh, and I can only give you an example. One of the, the things that I challenges I faced and I had to come up with a different way of structuring the story was when I did uh, the book about Phil Champagne, the climax actually happens in the middle of the story. So mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to keep it from being there, I went back and forth in time, time so that I could put the climax towards the end instead of in the middle. <laughs> That's the only way I could, without the whole last half of the book being, you know, downhill from there. You know, you have to come up with ways of doing things so that it is good for the reader, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well exactly. As- and it's, it's just the creative part of what we do. And I, um, I, I think sometimes... Uh, that gets lost, especially in this day and age of uh, self-publishing, where people can bypass the normal filters of practice and agents and rejection and, and reader comment. Um, so I, I uh, in some ways, our storytelling has, has diminished. So I try to talk about um, creativity and uh, doing things a little differently. Hemingway became Hemingway because he did he did it differently, and we all owe a debt to him today. Whether we write like him or not, uh, we we owe him that debt. Uh, 
and um, we're we're swimming upstream with the industry because they're getting you know more frightened as each day passes, and so they become less Risky. inclined to take risks. Yeah, uh, I had uh, Greg Olson. You know Greg. Oh yeah. Uh, on the show, we had a great conversation, and he was pointing out the fact that we're still here, <laughs> we're still doing it. <laughs> yes, we we haven't right. stopped. <laughs> he says, if you go back and look at when we started and who's still around, you know, we're still around. We haven't given up. We're hey, still at it. Burrow. Yeah. We have to have Ron back. We love having Ron on the show. when Death Row comes yeah, out in February. They're for Death Row Records. Oh, <laughs> Ron, it's always a pleasure having you. Great conversation, Ron. Love having you on the show. We'll have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Uh, Please do. We'll see you in a few months. Okay, great. All right. All right, guys. Thank you.